like you to turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 6. We're going to start today in verse 15, go through the end of the chapter. Last week, Paul took us to the pinnacle. Wow, where did everybody go? <laughs> did, you, did, 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 you know, did you know last week in the uh, Hispanic service downstairs, there were 50 people? Praise God. Isn't that, isn't that cool? 50 people. In verse 13 of chapter 6, Paul brings us to a pinnacle of his emphasis on grace. And he says, you need to make a decision. You need to, to, to take what you've understood and realize the offer that God is making to you in the realm of grace, and you need to come to Him in a once-and-for-all declaration and say, God, my life is Yours. I'm not talking about salvation. I'm talking about a commitment as a believer that surrenders your heart, your mind, your members, your eyes and ears and mouth and speech and will and ambition and goals and direction and your hands and feet and every part of your being to God and invite Him to accept that sacrifice that you make on His altar as a sacrificial lamb. I lay my life down. I devote it to God. I allow Him to have it. Now, as we come to the end of the chapter, Paul is going to give us a very practical admonition, and then he's going to take us into the realm of learning to walk in the Spirit. And many people come to that moment of decision where they yield themselves to God without reservation, and then they are surprised and sometimes confused by what follows. And in the next few weeks, that's where we're going to, to be spending our time, is understanding how the Holy Spirit of God takes this sacrifice and begins to own it for His own. Because that's what you want, isn't it? That's what you said. Take my life. Control it. Have dominion. I want to yield to you in every area. It's kind of like that old story goes, you know, that that uh, God comes to the house, comes to the front door, and he knocks, and he says, can I come in? By the way, in Revelation 3.20, that verse is written to Christians, in case you didn't know that. That's not, that's not a salvation verse. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. He's knocking on the door of the church, saying, I re really would like to come in and, and live with you and have fellowship with you. And so we come to that place, we say, Welcome, Mikasa Sukasa. My house is your house. Come in and make yourself at home, and you are welcome here. I want you to live here as if this were your own. I want you to take over. I invite you to come in, and we, and we bring him in the front door, and we have this nice, pleasant conversation. We have him be seated in the living room. We prepare a cup of tea or coffee. We bring it and serve it. We're having this nice chat, and everything's going so well. We're having these wonderful, warm, tender feelings. Jesus is in my living room. And then pretty soon he gets up and he goes over to the closet and he opens the door. And it's like, guests don't do that. 
Abba, you invited me in and said, make, make this your home. Treat it like it was yours. I want to see what's in the closet. Uh, well, <laughs> I didn't really have that in mind when I said that. And then he begins to explore, and he begins to... And see, this is what happens to us. We make this commitment, we make this decision, we make this absolute yielding to the Holy Spirit of God, and we say, come in and, and take control. And, and we feel good about that commitment. And the Holy Spirit invades our lives with His power. Now, He's already living there, but He moves into the, the, the realms of our life. But then where the rubber meets the road is, He begins to possess, one by one, the areas you've already told Him He could have. And all of a sudden we find that there's this rest W-R-E-S-T-I-N-G, this arresting of control. Because he starts knocking on areas that you really didn't even know you were hanging on to. And he begins to want to live in every realm of your life. And sometimes that's confusing. Sometimes it's surprising. Sometimes you're startled at what he puts his finger on. But he is out to honor your request. You committed your life to him. You laid it on the altar. You took your hands off. You invited him to have control. And now he's going to do it. Step by step. Room by room. Member by member. He is going to take possession of your life by your invitation. And that's what Romans 7 is all about. And that's where we're headed. Before we get there, Paul has some practical things to say to us, beginning in verse 15. What then shall we sin because we're not under law, but under grace? May it never be. Now at first glance, this question in verse 15 looks like the same question in verse 1. If you look in Romans 6.1, what then are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? And you say, well, Paul already asked that question. These are the same questions. But they're really not. Now, I'm not going to hold you accountable for the Greek grammar lesson last week, but I, I do want to ask you, do you remember the present tense and the aorist tense? Do you remember the, the, the basic gist of those concepts? Remember, the present tense shows ongoing action. It shows us the panoramic, the motion picture of action in process. So when Paul says back here in verse uh, 12, do not let sin reign in your body that you should obey its lust, in verse 13, do not go on presenting. This is what's been going on all along, and he's saying stop that activity. But the aorist tense is that one that just focuses right down to the, to the moment and says, in a snapshot, here's the question. Present yourselves to God. Once and for all, make a decision. In verse uh, 1 of chapter 6, he says, Shall we continue in sin that grace might abound? The question he's asking there is, 
if you've understood that you've been freed from the power of sin, should we go on living in that realm? Should we go on living under its dominion? Allowing grace to continue to, 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 to abound in the whole realm of our lives. And he says, may it never be, how, the, how shall we who died to sin continue to live in that? And he goes through all of that explanation in the first part of Romans 6. Our identification with Christ in his death and his burial and his resurrection. But then he comes to verse 15, after we've made that commitment, after we've made that decision, God, you can have my life lock, stock, and barrel. We make that commitment. We make that decision. And here's the question. It's an aorist subjunctive. Aorist. Keep that word in mind. Shall we commit an act of sin because the preposition there, the best translation in this verse is because, Shall we commit even one act of sin because we are under grace and not under law? You see, after we get the big thing settled, this comes down to the nitty-gritty to the individual thing. And really what Paul is posing is, and don't raise your hand and don't nod your head, but let me ask you, does the devil mess with your mind this way? You're saved, man. You're secure. You're going to heaven. You're safe. You're in grace. You can do this. It's not, it's not going to be a big deal. It's not going to affect your eternal destiny. And so the question is, shall we commit an act of sin? Because grace is available. Oh, don't we live there so much? Where the enemy comes with his little clever... <laughs> You know, ah, you're under grace, man. Don't sweat it. <laughs> Paul said, well, we'll get there, Todd. Hang in with me. Paul says, how can we do this? Do you not know? And here's his practical counsel. Now, remember... Follow this linearly. A lot of Bible students and a lot of commentators and a lot of theologians get all messed up with what's going on in Romans here. And I believe with all my heart, in spite of many commentaries to the contrary, that Paul is laying out for us the Christian life in our walk and experience in linear fashion. You know what I mean by that? Step by step. You start here, you go here next, you go here next, you go here next, and you go, and this is the way the Holy Spirit works in our lives. This is a linear progression of God's work in our life. We have come to a decision. We're talking about people who have made that all-out commitment. We're talking about people who have invited the Holy Spirit to control their life. We're talking about people who have made a decision for Jesus Christ to be totally in charge. He says, Do you not realize that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed, and having been freed from sin... 
you became slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Who cares what God wants? I'm, you know, I'm under sin. Therefore, what benefit were you deriving from the things of which you're now ashamed? The outcome is death. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification, and the outcome is life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, in the middle of this passage, Paul says, I'm speaking to you as to people of the flesh. I'm speaking to you in a way that even the natural man can understand. Paul is about to give us an illustration that he says anybody can get. You don't have to be spiritual. You don't even have to be saved. You don't even have to believe in God. You can understand this one. I'm appealing to the natural mind. He says, because you guys need to get some of this, and you're not catching on. Well, I don't know what he knew about the Romans, but he's writing as if he knows, or maybe he's just writing because he knows us. And he says, I'm putting this in simple terms. Here's the deal. Two masters, you have a decision. Follow this one, you're his slave. Follow this one, you're his slave. Whichever master you choose, there's a reward. You get paid. There's a benefit. Follow this one, you have life. Follow this one, you have death. He says, anybody can figure this out. Now, don't you realize that whoever you listen to and obey, you are that master's servant. He says, don't you get that? Very simple. Remember, you're free in Jesus Christ. But you are not autonomous. Sometimes we have the, the, the idea that my freedom in Christ means I can do anything I want. I'm in charge again. Oh, no, no. That was the whole point in the garden. That was the temptation. You can be God. You see, I could spend a lot of time this morning discussing logic and philosophy with you, and we could go through the whole arguments and, and kind of boil this down step by step, but here's the deal. There can be only one autonomous person in the universe. Only one. There cannot be two autonomous persons. There can only be one. Totally, totally free to do anything. All-powerful, totally free. There can only be one. And it's very logically demonstrated, you know, if I'm totally free, and Patsy's totally free, there's going to come a point in our lives, since we go to the same church and live in the same town, there's going to come a point when she wants to do something differently than I want to do something in the same area. And what's going to happen? Clash. Okay, somebody's got to win. Somebody's got to win. The person that wins... Got the trump card. The person that loses is, guess what? Not free. They had to yield. They had to yield. 
Simple as that. You cannot have two completely autonomous persons because eventually you're going to run into one another in your freedom where you encroach on the other person's wishes and somebody is going to lose and that person is no longer completely free. I won't spend a lot of time on that, but you can see the point. God is the only free person. Every other person, and I'm using person very deliberately because it applies to demons, it applies to angels, it applies to Satan, and it applies to human beings. Every other person will serve one or the other. And even Satan ultimately is only free within the very careful boundaries that God has drawn for him. He is limited. And you and I will never, ever come to the place where we can call ourselves autonomous. Because even when you think you're God, you're wrong. You're not. You're really not. You can't be that free. So what we have is a choice. We have a choice of which master we're going to serve. Because we never serve ourselves. We either serve the devil or we serve the Lord. We never, ever do as we please. You're always under the dominion of one or the other. It's that clear. And it's that simple. And Paul says, don't you realize that when you move down the road in this direction, you say, well, I just made this one decision. I'll just make this decision. And then I'll make this decision. He says, the further you go down the path of those choices, the more you come under the mastery of that master, the more you become a servant. I'm happy to tell you that works in both directions. If you follow the Holy Spirit in obedience, step by step by step, you become more and more under the control of the Holy Spirit. If you follow what you think is your own wishes, but really it's, it's Satan, step by step by step, you come under more of the dominion and control of Satan. Paul says anybody can figure this out. This is not... This is not super spiritual stuff. I'm talking in carnal, plain old, natural human terms. Follow this master, come more and more under his dominion. Follow this master, come more and more under his dominion. Whichever way you go, the deeper you go, the more control that person has over your life, the further down the path you travel. And he says, there is a payday. There's always a payday. There's always payment. The wages of sin is death. The gift of God is life. Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and have it abundantly. And so you say, wait a minute. What happened to my security in Jesus Christ? What happened to the fact that I'm going to heaven? What what does this death business have to do with me? I'm, I'm on my way to heaven. The wages of sin is death. It's always death. You get touched by its stench. Even if you ultimately end up in heaven, there will be 
a part of your life to whatever extent you're in bondage that is touched by death. Many years ago, a friend of mine and I were on a canoe trip, and we were canoeing down a particular river, and we liked to just take side trails and adventures, and we were going down a side creek that was, fed this, uh, this river we were canoeing in. And so we headed up this creek, and as we went further and further up it, we finally got about to the place where the canoe wouldn't float anymore. <laughs> you know, you, you, you'd, you'd just about to bottom out. And as we got to the head of this little creek, we smelled this awful, awful stench. It was horrible. And we thought, boy, we better check that out, because it was, it was dead and it was big. And we thought we'd better see, you know, Maybe somebody dumped a body back here. I don't know. So we, we started to explore. It wasn't hard to find. All you had to do was follow your nose. And we finally got to a little gully, a little ditch that fed this little creek that flowed into the river. And there in the gully lay the carcass of a cow that had fallen into this gully, apparently broken legs or something, ended up on its back and couldn't get out and died there. And now, I don't know, it's a couple of weeks later, because most of the carcass was there, but oh my goodness, Whew. it was bad. I mean, you know when the, when the odor is so bad you can taste it? It's bad. It's like the opposite of cologne, you know. <laughs> this, this stench gets on you. It's thick. And even after we left the carcass, Satisfied that we didn't have to call the police and report anything dastardly. We left the carcass, got back in the canoe. We just had that stench. It was ugly. And it took a while. It's like being around a campfire, man. It just doesn't get out right away. And when you follow the master of sin, even as a child of God, you're going to get stink on you. It's going to smell. It's going to be stench. And it's going to have an effect in your life that is like death. But when you follow Jesus, there is life. Jesus said, I came to give you life in all of its abundance. And when you follow him, he gives you life. What does that mean? That means you, you, you become free. You say, what? we're talking masters and slaves here. Well, that's the point. Paul says, I'm talking to you like natural people because it's hard for you to think spiritually. You think, if I have to come under the dominion of somebody, if I have to, if I have to serve them, I have to come under their authority, then I'm not free. I'm in bondage. I'm a slave. And Paul says, if you only could think spiritually, if you could really get it, to follow Jesus Christ is true freedom. You're not ever going to be autonomous. You're going to make up your mind about that. You're going to follow one or the other. But if you follow Jesus, He is going to fulfill your life. You're going to become what you were meant to be, not only as human beings in general, because all of humanity was destined to be something that looks like God, containers of the divine. We were made for that purpose. And... and as we follow Him, we become like that globally and generally what God meant human beings to be. But even more so, we become particularly what God meant us to be. 
individually what God meant us to be. The Holy Spirit leads us in ways that are in perfect harmony with the design and purpose of our lives so that we fit the plan. I'm so glad to tell you that. God does not try to take the round peg of your life and cram it into the square hole that it wasn't made for. Or take the, the, the square block of your life and shove it into a round hole and then knock all the, the edges off and you've got a tight fit. God doesn't plan to do that. God, God plans to give you something that is just right, that is perfect for you, that fulfills you, that, that what you were made for becomes what you do. Remember that line in, in, of Eric Little in the movie, um, chariots of fire you remember that line where he's talking I think to his sister and he's talking about that he's wrestling with the call of God to missionary service and 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 running and and being you know a champion runner and he's getting pressure you know you, you need to give up this this side trail and you need to really follow the will of God for your life and and he's and I love this point because he's in the middle of that and he's trying to he's trying to explain what's going on and he says when I run, when I run, I feel the pleasure of God in me. Because he was doing what he was made to do. You know, other people want to put you in a box. They want to, they want to force you into a mold. They want to make you be something that you weren't made. But God always wants you to be what you were made to be. Because he made you. He made you. And He wants to lead you in ways that are the perfect fulfillment of the desires of your heart. Okay, we can talk about masters and slaves and wages if you want to. That's carnal stuff. But let me tell you about real freedom. It's in Jesus. When you do what He's called you to do. When you do what He leads you to do. It's in Jesus. And Paul says, you follow this master, verse 19 but now present your members as slaves to righteousness resulting in holiness, resulting in sanctification. Because when you get to the end, you derive your benefit, verse 22, resulting in sanctification and the outcome eternal life. He says when you follow the Jesus road, you stay on that path, you're listening to the Holy Spirit, you're following the life that God has destined you to live. And every day, every day, little by little, you look more and more like Jesus. You get more and more life for your wages. You, you get more and more satisfaction and abundance in following the Lord Jesus Christ. And then one day you just step out of this body and you step into eternity and you look at Him face to face and you're there. And we will be like Him because we will see Him as He is. And that's eternal life forever. So Paul says, you have a choice. You have a choice. And he says, I'm telling you in plain terms that anybody can get, but if you want the spiritual interpretation, true freedom is the obedience of faith in the Holy Spirit. That's true freedom. If you want freedom, that's freedom. Follow Jesus. Now, when we make this decision, 
When we say, yes, that, that's what I want. That is what I want. I want to give you a preview of chapter 7. Because there are two things, two habits that we need to break. That God needs to break. We can't do it. You ever tried to break a habit? Ever tried to break a habit? You know how tough that can be? Why is it hard to break a habit? Because it's a habit. Thank you, Todd. Yes, because it's a habit. And a habit means you do it over and over and over until it is mindless. You do it automatically. You know, and they don't have to be big sins or horrible things. You just have habits in your life. You know, if you're married or if you live with other people, you know that other people have habits, right? You may not have any, but they have habits. Like, do you squeeze the toothpaste from the middle or from the end? You know, do you, do you make it all work toward the spout, or do you just grab it and squeeze every time you want to brush your teeth, you end up with this, you know. And, and get, get somebody in your life that shares your toothpaste to break that habit of doing it wrong. <laughs> right? Because you do it right. Right? Don't you do it right? They're doing it wrong. You know? Or, or how do you put the toilet paper on the roll? You have, the, you have it coming off the top? Or do you do it the wrong way? Put it coming down the bottom, you know, out of the back. Habits. And try to break those. Try to, try to do them differently. You know, if you make too big a deal of those things, that, that'll make life miserable because everybody's got them. And you try to break them, and it's very hard because they're, they're natural. You do what you think is right without thinking about it. Repetitively, over and over and over again. That's your habit. And there are two habits of our spiritual life that the Holy Spirit needs to break in order for us to walk in the Spirit. And this is what Romans 7 is going to be all about. In the first place, our natural inclination, the first habit, is to view religion as a system of moral righteousness and to live by a code or a law that makes us good people who are acceptable to God. We naturally resort to this methodology after Romans 6.13. And what I mean by that is, we come to this commitment. We make this all-out commitment to Jesus Christ. We, we lay it all on the altar. We're done. I'm giving my life up. God's right. I can't do this. I, I'm going I'm to give it up. I'm going to let him have my eyes and ears and hands and mouth and feet and, and, and consciousness. and my, I'm, I just want him to take control and take everything. Do you remember what I said about that presenting the imagery that was there in the minds of, of Paul's readers? It was the imagery of the sacrifice. And the priest slit the throat of the lamb and bled the blood and then put the lamb on the altar and it died. You know, and this is, this is a commitment to, to, I agree with God, I'm going to die here. But what do we do? We have a habit. What do we do? We, we come away from last Sunday and we hit Monday morning and we say, Oh God, I made a commitment to you yesterday and I'm going to let you have my whole being. So I want you to know that today, Today, I am going to do my best to live for you. I'm going to try, I'm going to try hard.
to do my best to live for you. Does that sound like a dead person? That sounds like somebody who's really alive to me. They're taking action. They're making decisions. They're, 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 they're not laying on the altar. They're in action. I'm going to live for God. That's a hard habit to break. We naturally assume that all-out dedication means all-out effort. I'm going to redouble my attempts to be good. And friends, it's not going to work. And how do we do that? We do that by, by rereading the rules. I'm going to read my Bible more closely to find out all the things I'm supposed to do and all the things I'm not supposed to do. And, and I'm going to, so I, I'm, going to, I'm going to read, and oh, I read this passage this morning. It says, do not let any idle word proceed out of your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, for the need of the moment that can give grace to those that hear. Wow, I, today, God, I'm going, to do, I'm going to do my best to make sure that no idle words come out of my mouth. And what happens? Anybody want to tell me what happens? No, we all know what happens. You have the worst day ever with a loose tongue. I mean, you just have a terrible day. And you find yourself saying, oh, I did it again, oh, I did it again, oh, I did it again, all day long. Wow, that was not a good thing to do. <laughs> I didn't have a headache. It was, it was almost gone. But. And, and, and we say, you know, I, I'm going to redouble my efforts. I want to read you something. I mentioned this a week ago. I'm going to mention it more than this. I'm going to mention it again and again. And, and, and you agree with me. I know you do because it's in the Bible. I mean, I didn't make it up. It's in Colossians chapter 2. It's in the Bible. And God said it through the Apostle Paul, so it's divinely inspired. But you know what? Most of you do not believe it. Most of you don't believe it. Now, I'm, I'm leaving the door open for some who do. But what I'm about to tell you, what, where we're going in Romans 7, let me just take an aside for a moment. And where we're going in Romans 7, 99%, I just pulled that number out of the air, it's probably more, 99% of the Christian church doesn't believe it. They don't understand it. They don't get it. Protestant churches, evangelical churches, and when, and when we do catch a hold, we want to blame it on the Catholics. It's a carryover from the pre-Reformation area. The Catholics ruined us with this religion thing. But it's not a Catholic thing, friends. The Catholic Church has made a science out of guilt and rules. But they don't have any corner on that market. That's not a Catholic thing. That's a human thing. They just happen to codify it and put it down in, in the regulations of the church. And we're still living under that umbrella, not because we're Catholic, but because we're people. Because that's our background. Because we are human beings. It's our tendency. Protestants and evangelicals have the same problem. I'm not picking on Catholics. I'm telling you that the church in this country, I don't know about other countries in revival, but the church in this country doesn't understand this. And it leads to our failure. Listen to Paul's words, Colossians 2, verse 16, by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, let no one act as your judge in regard to food or drink, or in respect to a festival, 
or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. In other words, all that stuff in the Old Testament was, was a shadow pointing to Jesus, who is the real thing. He is the real deal. And when we have Him, we don't need the shadow. We need Him. That's the point here. And he says, let no one keep defrauding you of your prize. What is that prize? Christ in me, the hope of glory. Chapter 1, Christ in me. I'm free in Jesus. That's my prize. Don't let anyone keep defrauding you of the prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels, taking his stands on th visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head, the Lord Jesus, from whom the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments, grows with the growth which is from God. In other words, I'm in a dynamic living union with my head, the Lord Jesus Christ. I have him in my life. I'm to live in that union, not in the old shadows. And then he says, and here's what you don't believe. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with the using, in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. These are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body. What am I talking about? You have a problem with lust. I'm picking on the internet because so many men have a struggle with this, okay? And it's a useful illustration because everybody can connect with the significance. Plug in whatever, you, like Hector said in your, earlier in the prayer time. Okay, plug in your problem here. You have a problem with lust and internet pornography. So you go to a wise Christian counselor, and this is what you hear. The cure for you is to disconnect your internet service. That's what you need to do. And, and you need to stay away from computers that are hooked up to the internet. That will solve your problem. No, it won't. No, it won't. It will not help you. It's only window dressing. It only cleans up the outside. You know, some people have pet pigs. Do you know that? You've seen it. They're cute little pink things, and they have little bows on their head, and they kind of trot around the house, and they're little, they're little pet pigs. Turn the pig loose anywhere near a mud hole and see what happens. You can wash a pig, you can polish them, you can perfume them, you can put a bow on them, you can put them in your living room, but they are still a pig. And when they get a chance to act like a pig, they're going to be a pig. They will be in the mud hole, baking in the sun, covered with mud. Because they are pigs. 
They like it. That's who they are. You can cut off your internet. You can stop your subscription. You can avoid anybody that has an internet connection. You can stay away from computers, but you are still a lustful person with a sexual perversion going on in your heart. You aren't any different. You're the same person. Nothing has changed. Pick a sin, any sin. Stop the outward behavior. Take the law. Apply the law. Make it work in your life. Get rid of the stuff. Drive around the block to avoid hooters. You're still the same person on the inside. Nothing's changed. It has not helped you. It's made you look better. It may keep you out of trouble. You may stay married longer. Those are benefits. But you are still the same. And friends, I want to tell you something this morning. God is not into polishing up the outside, putting a bow on our head, and making us cute. God is into the real business of transforming us into the image of Jesus Christ. And that is a transformation that cannot come from the outside. Because when the law is presented, it's out here. And we take it in with our eyes, and we take it in with our ears, and we hear it, and we read it, and we speak it, and we memorize it, and we try to do it, and it's all in the flesh, and it always fails. It always fails. It will not make you different in here. It will only polish you up out there. God did not give the law to make us holy. Are you with me? God did not give the law to make us holy. He gave the law to make us aware that we're sinful. If the law could have produced holiness, I'm practically quoting Scripture here. If the law could produce holiness, Jesus Christ died in vain. But it cannot do it. It never can do it. But the church keeps doing it. We keep making rules. We make a church covenant. Some churches put the covenant right up there on the wall so you can see it. We're not going to do this and this and this and this. And then they try to keep the rules. And the only thing they have done is put window dressing on a carnal nature. They're just the same rotten people on the inside. And nothing is changing in here. The law doesn't work. Ever. Read the end of the passage. Colossians 2, 23. These have the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body. This is the Word of God. Listen. They are of no value against fleshly indulgence. They don't even help a little bit. They don't help a little bit. You say, well, since I pulled the internet out, I don't, I don't surf the internet for pornography since I canceled my subscription. Duh. Why? I don't have the web. Just go, get near the web and you're the same person. Nothing's changed. It won't help you. Like I said, it may keep you married longer, but it won't help you. 
Be different. It won't change you. It can't. There's no power. We constantly go back to the law. Galatians, Paul said, having begun in the Spirit, you're saved in the Spirit, having begun in the Spirit, are you so foolish that you're going to try to go on being sanctified and perfected in the flesh? Where's your head? You couldn't do it before. Why do you think you can do it now? You can't. It doesn't work. The other problem is, there's actually three problems with the law. It's flawed because the law has the effect of stirring up rebellion. Listen, the law is married to the carnal nature. God says, thou shalt not. Something inside of you says, but I want to. You may not ever have thought about it before. But as soon as somebody shows up and says, you can't do that, you say, oh, yes, I can. All you have to do is make a new rule, and somebody's ready to break it. Just make a rule. Somebody's ready to break it. The law stirs up the carnal nature, and it causes a reaction. You know what the reaction is? Rebellion. I am going to do my thing. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. I'm free. No, you're still in bondage right now, but you, I'm free. I can do what I want to do. The law actually makes you worse. Now, Some people get worse in their pride, not in their, behavior, not in their outward foibles. There are always three results to law-keeping legalism. There's always three results. None of them are good, but you know what they are? And it's based on your temperament. It has nothing to do with anything else. It's just based on your temperament. Do you have a lot of self-control? Do you have a lot of willpower? Are you one of those people that keeps that agenda, keeps that schedule, exercises diligently, does everything you're supposed to do, eats the right stuff? You know, are you one of those people? That's your temperament. That's cool. I'm glad for you. I have no idea what that's like, but I, I admire people that are like that. <clears throat> when you give them rules, they tend to pick and choose a little bit. But they pick a set they like, the ones that fit their style. And you know what they become? Pharisees. They become Pharisees. That's one outcome of legalism. If you happen to have a temperament that suits itself to rules-keeping, you will be a Pharisee. If you have a temperament that is tender and says, I, I really want to do the right thing, but the more I try, the worse I get. I, I, just can't, I just can't do it. Then you will end up in despair. Brokenhearted, discouraged, and defeated, and depressed. <clears throat> if you've got a little gumption, and you're not a Pharisee, and you're not about to give in to despair, you know what you'll do? Forget it all. I'm going to do as I please. 
Nobody's going to tell me what to do. You're going to be a libertine. Rules keeping only produces those three kind of people. It never produces godly people. You hear me? It never produces godly people. I didn't say it. The Bible says it. It has no value against fleshly indulgence. God did not give the law to make the Jews holy. He gave the law to show them how sinful they were. He gave them the law to point out their iniquity so they would turn to Him and be ready for a Savior. By the time they were fed up to hear and nauseated, they would be ready for a Savior that would save them from their failure. And he set up a sacrificial system in the meantime because he said, when you break the law, bring this as a sacrifice. When you do it, not if, when. Because they were going to do it. And Paul says the law is a schoolmaster that brings us to Christ. It points us to Jesus. It brings us to our, the fact of our need that we need a Savior. And that's its only purpose. When it gets us there, it's done. The law cannot make us holy. God says, when you come to me, I will take this stony heart out of you. I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you. When you're walking down the road and, and something catches your eye and you start to drift off the path, you'll hear a word, a word, the rhema, the spoken word of God behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. Oh, okay, yes, Lord and you will be guided moment by moment by my Spirit in the way of life. Now, I want to be quick to tell you, just in case you leave here either wanting my resignation or deciding that um, you can go out and party big time. When you are walking by the Spirit, and He is in charge of your life moment by moment as you say yes to Him when He speaks to you, your life will look like this book. Because this book is what Jesus' life looked like, and your life will look like Jesus' life. You won't speak the idle words, because about the time they formulate in your mind, the Holy Spirit is going to say, this is the way, walk in it. You don't need to say that. And you say, yes, Lord. And when you say, yes, Lord, being filled with the Spirit of God, a power is released from God that enables obedience as you yield to Him and He performs through you the behavior of Jesus. Some years back, Charles Sheldon wrote a book in his steps, and the famous question that came out of that book is, what would Jesus do? And a little while back, you know, a couple of years ago, it was kind of a revival that everybody's got these bracelets, WWJD. And you know, that's noble, and that's great, and that's a good, that, that, and that has an appearance of wisdom. Man, does that make sense? You know, whenever you're in a situation, just ask yourself the question, what would Jesus do, and then do it. That makes such good sense. That's so wise, it's so smart. That's Colossians 2.23. Don't work. I know the grammar's bad. I said it for emphasis. It doesn't work. Because you have no power 
to decide to do what Jesus would do. And I'm not even sure that we're smart enough to figure out what Jesus would do in every situation. You know that? When you take your brain and you come to the Bible and you come to a circumstance and say, I think I'll make a, a spiritual application here. I'm going to figure out what the Bible says Jesus would do in this situation. I'm going to do that. You have two problems. Number one, you're arrogant. You think you can figure it out. That's the first problem. The second one is, you don't get it. You don't have any power. Well, what if he says, lay down your life for this person? Whoa. I don't want to do that. You don't have any power to do what he's calling you to do. Even if you could figure it out. But when you listen to the Holy Spirit and he guides you, he empowers you, he directs you, and you find, voila, it is in harmony with the book. That's how it works. But that is a habit that does not die easily. The second habit that needs to be broken, I, the last two points aren't that long in case you don't get excited here, but, but the second habit that has to be broken is the habit of walking in the flesh, the habit of walking in the, in the natural man. You know, we want God to clean up the bad stuff. We can recognize the messes, but we think we've got other stuff that's pretty well together. You know, I've I got things about me I like, and I do those pretty well. I'm educated, I'm trained, I have skills, I have ability. I can pull this off. I don't need anybody to tell me how to... I can drive my car on my own. I went to driver's ed. I've been driving for X number of years. I don't need anybody to tell me how to drive. Well, I kind of like having Jesus ride with me, point things out. Sometimes he gives me friends that point things out. that I, I didn't hear him either, you know. And I said, that. But... I kind of like having Jesus there. I had a friend who's with Jesus now, face to face with him. And he was a gospel teacher, a Bible teacher by calling, but he was an auto mechanic by trade. And he said all day long in the shop, he had a reputation as being a great tune-up guy. He could tune an engine like nobody's business, and people really loved to take their cars to him because he had a great reputation that way. He could make them really run. And they didn't know what his secret was. His secret was... He said, all day long, Jesus and I are in communion. We talk. And he says, you know, while I'm working on that, I say, Lord, this is, help me with this engine. Just show me what to do. Guide me here. You, you just take care of this through me. And he said, I would get an idea. I'd be listening to this thing, and an idea would come to my mind. Check this out. And he said, it wouldn't necessarily follow the, the algorithm of the repair manual, but he said it was, you know, and I'd go check it out. Sure enough, there's a problem. Or he said, I'd be fixing something, and, and the Holy Spirit would just nudge me and say, you need to do this before you do that. And I'd, sure enough, he said, I needed to, I'd overlook something. He said, God guided me. Art DeMoss was the first guy to sell insurance by direct mail. I've told you his story. He, he died as a multi-multi-millionaire. The company made $240 million the last year of his life. And he wrote a little booklet called God's Secret for Success, and he said, the plan is, the first hour of every day of my life, I spend with Jesus. And I'm not talking about this is, this is my rule. I'm saying, I love Jesus. I get up and I love to meet him in the morning. And I, and, and I'm just, and I get up there and I spend an hour with him. And he said, I invite him to guide my day. Now, you may not make $240 million. We pick those illustrations out because we hear about them. You may go broke. 
because God may want to do something else with your life that involves going broke. That doesn't square with it. That's not our theology, right? Well, that's not supposed to happen. Would God want you to do something with your life that would cause your death? What about martyrs? What about martyrs? Well, I'm leaving my family without a breadwinner. I'm leaving my children. How could God want that? Maybe I should just deny Jesus and keep working. What are they going to do without me? Would God ever lead somebody to do something that would cause their death, like boldly witnessing, like sharing Jesus? And and it costs them their death and they leave their family fatherless? I mean, what's the deal? See, we, we want to put God in a box and it always looks like success with Made in America written all over it. It's not that way. Where was I? Totally lost my train of thought there. God wants to control the good stuff because the flesh has no good stuff. God wants to guide you even when you think you've got it all together. He wants to be in charge. And that's a bad habit that we have of relying on our own wisdom and natural mind for all the stuff we think we do so well. And God says, I want to do that through you too. I don't want to just clean up the messes you make. You are a mess. So I want to deal with all of you. And the problem is we don't know we're a mess. Which brings me to my third and final point at which I will stop. There is one thing that we have to learn and experience before we'll believe it. Somewhere toward the end of Romans 7, Paul makes this statement, I know that in me that is in my flesh dwells no good thing. How many of you don't raise your hand, don't nod, just in your mind? How many of you this morning would agree that there is no moral good in you? That, that when Paul says, I know that, it, that, is, that is in me, that is in my flesh, there dwells nothing good, you say, yep, that's right, I agree with that. Now, let me tell you something else I've said publicly in front of the church before, and most people still don't believe me. I have said that every one of you has the capacity to be Adolf Hitler. Every one of you has the capacity to be Charles Manson. Every one of you has the capacity to be Jeffrey Dahmer. Every one of you, including me, we all have that potential. Most of you don't think that. You can smile and say, yeah, Paul's being a preacher now. He's using hyperbole, one of these big exaggerations to make his point. But that's not true of me. I'd never be that way. Folks, listen. No one on Skid Row, filthy, drunk, drug addict, in the gutter, sleeping with two-bit whores, and, and living a profligate life of, of worthlessness. No one ever got up one morning as they got dressed for work and said, I think I'm going to set a new goal for myself. My goal is going to be to be a derelict, a drunkard, a drug addict, and a bum and live under the bridge. That's my goal in life. I'm going to work toward that end. No one ever, ever, ever set that goal that's there. Most of them say, gosh, I just made a whole string of bad choices. I have no idea how I got here, but, you know, there's a demon in the bottle or whatever. They, they have some reason why they, but they, they have no idea. They made a string of bad choices that resulted in a cascade of consequences. And the guy that kept looking at weird stuff on the Internet 
and kept fantasizing and kept imagining how he could do that, one day tried it and got away with it and tried it again and got away with it again. And then one day they open his freezer and find body parts. No one ever plans that. It just happens. Because every one of you and I has it in us. But we don't really believe that. And part of this process of learning to walk in the Spirit, friends, is God will convince you of that. Now, now God's not going to convince you of that with body parts in your freezer. You know, He's not out to destroy your life and leave you in the gutter. He is out to tackle some area of your life where you think you've got it together. And, and he's not going to put, don't misunderstand what I'm saying, he's not going to push you to sin. The Holy Spirit never does that. But it's an area where you keep saying, I, I can do this one. I can do this. I can manage this myself. And you keep pushing him away. I can do this part. And he says, okay, have at it. Until you come to the utter surprise that you are a total zero in the department of spiritual success. And when you are laying in that pit and you look up and you say, God, there is nothing good in me. And he says, I'm really glad you finally figured that out. Because now you will trust me and put no confidence in your flesh. We don't get that just by reading it. I'm sorry to tell you, it comes by learning it. You have to be convinced. Because intellectually, you will never be persuaded that it's really true but he will bring you delicately, patiently, graciously to the point where you see yourself in no uncertain terms. And from that day forward, I'm not telling you I haven't sinned from that day forward. Do not hear that. But I'm telling you this. I know that I could be Adolf Hitler apart from Jesus Christ. I know that. I know that. And I respect that. I want Jesus in my life. I want Jesus to be in charge. Because I can't put any confidence in my flesh. It is not trustworthy. And it has no power. And it will never get it right. And we have to learn it in order to trust him fully. But hey, i got good news for you. <laughs> this is what the divines, the old mystics, called the path of the cross. But i got good news for you. There's light at the end of the tunnel, and it's not a train. It's Jesus, shining in all of his glory. And when he brings you through this path of breaking these two habits, relying on rules, relying on the carnal nature, and teaches you to put no confidence in the flesh, as the Holy Spirit 
invades your home and takes control, man, you'll be walking with Jesus. You'll be getting life. It'll be abundant life. You'll be so filled up, you can hardly stand it. You'll be bubbling over. You'll have such joy. You'll have such immense satisfaction. You'll be so thrilled with Jesus. You're praising Him. Life is fantastic. And one day, you know, you're just going to step out of your shell right into glory. If He doesn't rapture you first, then you're going to just look at Him face to face and be like Him. And it's going to be fun. Meant to be like that. Because that's His plan. And He knows how to do it. Don't try to sanctify each other. Holy Spirit knows what he's doing. Let him have his way. He knows how to do it. Father, thank you for your word this morning. It's been a long message, but oh God, so important. So important. Master Jesus, we want to be free in you. You have called us to freedom. We want to walk by your Spirit. We want a heart of flesh that that is soft and moldable and filled with your Spirit. We want to we walk in obedience <coughs> to that voice that guides us into truth and leads us in paths that magnify the name of Jesus and lifts Him up. Oh God, break the habits of our life of religion and carnal dependence and bring us to the full experience of that surrender because Romans 8 comes right after Romans 7 and we thank you for it in Jesus name Amen